This episode is brought to you by Seed. Did you know that supporting your health can be as easy as taking two capsules a day? Each daily dose of Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic is formulated with 24 scientifically studied probiotic strains that support gut, skin, and heart health, helping you start the new year off right. Visit seed.com slash Spotify and use code SPOTIFY25 to get 25% off your first month. It's Tuesday, December 29th, 2015 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. In business news, we knew that oil was in trouble, but did you know that oil of Olay was in trouble? Procter & Gamble has eliminated a sixth of the Oil of Olay products. They had burgeoned to about 150 products in the line. I thought separate left eyelid and right eyelid cleanses were a bit much, gotta admit. According to the Wall Street Journal, since Procter & Gamble bought the company in 1985, it, quote, expanded the line to include eight sub-brands that it believes became overwhelming and confusing to customers. Now, I'm sure that the marketers of Procter & Gamble were saying, I just don't understand why would these sub-brands be confusing to our consumers? I mean, we've observed them in the stores. We see these 35-year-old women entering the beauty aisle and they become confused and they become disoriented. You wanna know why? It's because they're really 85. That's how well Oil of Olay works. Oil of Olay is the bomb, of course it works. It ain't snake oil, it's actual Olay oil made from extract of the Olay plant. Oil of Olay, it can help you look younger too. Which brings me to the name. Actually, now it's not even called Oil of Olay anymore. That ad I played was from 1979. It's just called Olay. The no blood for Oil of Olay protesters got to the boys in corporate, apparently. Now, they just knew that the name Oil of Olay makes no sense. It was from a time when a phrase like Oil of Olay seemed foreign. Vaguely foreign. Olay, that's something a foreigner would say, but the good, the suave kind of foreigner. It's borrowed from the Chef Boyardee school of xenophilia. It's one of those brand names that if they came out with them today, they would get shot down in a second in the boardroom. Yet all these names are currently affixed to actually really successful brands. I have a list of them right here, all right? Chips Ahoy, because American kids, they love a nautical theme. You know, sailors were big then. Popeye was big then. Donald Duck wore the sailor suit back then. Kids love the sea back then. Here's a couple more. The Today Show. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, right? Chock full of nuts coffee. Exactly. Let's put that on a can and I'll drink that. Fruit of the Loom. What? What? What's your problem with Fruit of the Loom? It's fruit. It comes from the loom. Don't question me on this, okay? I'm the guy that came up with cream of wheat. What about either of those two nouns would possibly turn off a modern food consumer? You are crazy. Cream of wheat is a great name. Here's another one. The Airbus. Yes, we need to brand this technological marvel of speed and safety and convenience with the best thing that people associate with transportation. A bus. It's an Airbus. I think people could get their heads around it. Can you think of any other brand names that are pretty terrible but are affixed to really popular brands? You could send it to us at Facebook at facebook.com slash SlateGist or tweet me or the show. We're at SlateGist or at PescaMI. You're on Twitter, right? What millennial is not on Twitter? What? You're 93 years old? Damn it, Oil of Olay, you've done it again. On the show today, I spiel about presents. I got some complaints. That's right. What you just heard, that Oil of Olay thing, that wasn't even a spiel. That was a spiellette. But first, Gretchen Rubin on The Four Tendencies. 
In the late 17th century, a man named John Dryden, ever hear of him? He was the dominant literary figure of his age. He excelled at satiric verse. He basically established the heroic couplet as the standard form of English poetry. Upon his death, Walter Scott called him Glorious John. He was the greatest writer, possibly one of the greatest thinker during the what's known as the Age of Dryden. Now we call it the Restoration Period. However, there is one quote of John Dryden that I think stands above all others. I came across this quote when it was uh, said by Shaka Smart, then the coach of the Virginia Commonwealth Rams. I've taught it to my children. They know the quote. It doesn't really influence their lives. And here is the quote. First we make our habits, then they make us. Good quote, right? Habits is the subject or are the subject of better than before. What I learned about making and breaking habits to sleep more, quit sugar, procrastinate less, and generally build a happier life. Gretchen Rubin is the author. She is the author of The Happiness Project, and she is the host of the Panoply podcast, Happier with Gretchen Rubin. And now I am happier than before because I'm here with Gretchen Rubin. Hello, Gretchen. Hello. I'm very happy to be talking to you. Absolutely. I have some questions for you, but that's because I found out that I am a questioner. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. So what are the archetypes and what do they tell you about yourself? These are the four tendencies. Tendencies. Yes. And uh, I divide all of humankind into four tendencies. It has to do with how you deal with an expectation, outer expectations like a work deadline or inner expectations like a New Year's resolution. This sounds boring, but hang in there. It gets yeah. good. Okay. So they're upholders, questioners, obligers, and rebels. Okay. Let's take, yeah. I think rebels is easiest. They just don't want to do it. Well, they, they resist outer and inner expectations. So yeah. if you ask or tell them to do something, they're going to resist. Yeah. They don't even want to tell themselves what to do. So I have a son who's definitely this. Is this mm. a recipe for a nightmare in life? Can you change? Like, what are the good parts about being a rebel? There's a lot of good parts. They're unconventional. They think outside the box. They're highly principled. They can stick to their principles because, you know, they, they're completely focused on being authentic and being true to those, themselves. And the way to manage a rebel, if you're trying to get them to do something, is to remind them this is what they want. Mm -hmm. What do they want? What's their identity? How can they be true to themselves? And a lot of times they'll, if you say, hey, clean up your room, your son might say, I was gonna clean up my room, but now that you told me to, I'm not going to. So is an upholder sort of the opposite, exact opposite of a <laughs> rebel? <laughs> yes. Yeah. So upholders readily meet outer and inner expectations. So they meet the work deadline, they keep the New Year's resolution without much fuss. They want to meet other people's expectations of them, but they want to meet their expectations for themselves too. And they don't have much trouble. So these tend to be the people have the highest affinity to habits. Like it's pretty easy for them to form habits and they like forming habits. So Hermione Granger is kind of your classic upholder. Hillary Clinton. I don't know. You know, you can't look at see what somebody does from the outside. Yeah. You have to know them from the inside. And because of Harry Potter, we have a good sense of where of well, what it seems like thinking. the good student, the dutiful student, the person who does the right thing. It would be an upholder. Yes, and but sometimes that can lead them astray. Like I could imagine myself playing a part in the Spanish Inquisition if that oh, keyed yeah, sure. into my upholder right. side the wrong way. But then also, like, Hermione ran away from school and, you know, revolted against the Ministry of Magic when she felt like it was the right thing to do. So sometimes upholders can violate expectations to keep a, tr a higher level of what is right. Now, there are the other two that yeah. are interesting. I'm going to get to questioner last. What's the third one? Obliger. Okay. What's the difference between an obliger and an upholder? Okay, so obligers 
readily meet outer expectations, but they struggle to meet their inner expectations. And I, I got the window into this when a friend of mine said, when I was on the track team, I never missed track practice, but I can't go running now. Mm-hmm. Why? When she had a team and a coach, she had no trouble following through, but it, when it was just her own desire to r- r- go running, she couldn't do it. And so if you're an obliger, and I have to say this is the largest tendency, this is the one that the most people fit into, you're going to meet a work deadline. You're going to do something if somebody else asks you for it. It's your own expectations for yourself where you struggle. And so the answer to that is to create outer accountability for whatever it is you want to do for yourself. So if you want to go running, get a trainer, run, run with a friend, have a Facebook group, do something to give yourself accountability, and then you'll be able to do anything you want. Now we get to questioners. Yes. When you were, this is one of those bolt from the blues, not a lightning bolt, which you also describe in your book, but this is one of those things where you read it. I read it about myself. I'm like, ah, very rarely do you see something that describes me as much as this described me, oh, which good. is I will never listen to anyone's advice until I you know, process it, chew it over, figure out if it's right. And then if it's right, I'll buy in big time. And I don't even ever sweat or question whether I am going to change. Recently, I was given a medical diagnosis. I was told, you know, you probably should lose X amount of weight and, you know, change your diet. So I thought about it like, that is sensible advice. I'm definitely going to do it. Talking to my girlfriend, she's like, well, it's not going to be easy. I'm like, no, it'll be easy. It's like, no, no, no. You're going to have to, you know, change what you eat. And you're going to like, trust me, it'll be easy. Like, it won't be easy in that I'll have to do the thing every day. But I'm definitely going to, why wouldn't I do the thing every day? And then I did the thing every day. And that's absolutely questioner because they resist outer expectations, but they always can meet their own inner expectations. So they'll do something if they think it makes sense. So they hate anything arbitrary or inefficient or senseless. Like their first question is, why am I listening to you and why would I do this? But once they buy in, once they say, yes, that makes sense, then they can kind of effortlessly follow through. But their first question is, why would I bother? Why would a questioner, you might look at a questioner and say, well, there is a guy who should lose 20 pounds and doesn't. But why would a questioner ever fail to meet his own expectations? I mean, it seems to me that once the questioner answers the questions for himself, they get to the point where they change. Or is it just that sometimes they give themselves the wrong answers? That could be the trap. I, the I think I think sometimes you just, you know, you don't give yourself, you don't ask the right questions, mm-hmm. you don't follow it through, you don't really, you don't really make it a priority, you don't really believe that you need to do it. Like, yeah. well, my doctor says I need the... to lose 20 pounds, but, you know... Every man in my family has lived to be 90. Like, I don't need to lose 20 pounds. You you might say, like, oh, well, this is why you're wrong. But in the questioner's mind, that question has been asked and answered to their satisfaction. Well, when you said that, I'm like, well, why is that guy necessarily wrong? Right. To me, the the place where the questioner falls down is not that he's a questioner. It's when he answers his question incorrectly. Right. That's the trap. Yeah. Not that he asks the question, but that he answers it incorrectly. Right. Yeah. No, well, somebody I know was said to me, oh, well, you know, my doctor told me to take all these vitamins and supplements and I never do. Why don't I? And I was like, well, do you think you need to? And he, he was like, no, I don't actually think I need to. I'm like, well, then there's your answer because you're not going to do it if you're not convinced. But he just he'd gone along with his doctor enough to buy them. Or yeah. Who knows how much he spent, bought them, but then didn't hadn't really closed the loop to say, OK, I'm really believe that I need to do this. And so the so the habit did not form because the question was not was not answered. Oh, and by the way, I should say, if somebody, usually people can kind of tell themselves just from a brief description, but there is a quiz on my site, GretchenRubin.com, if you want to take the quiz that will tell you what you are. Is there really such a thing as moderation when Mm -hmm. it comes to, I don't know. temptation. Yeah, that is, you really think moderation is as good a strategy as abstinence? 
I mean, don't you know the people that have the bar of chocolate in their desk drawer and once a day or every other day they have one square of fine chocolate and that's all they want? And then they get kind of freaked out and panicky if they uh-huh. can't have it. Oh, that's Some, a moderator? A moder- uh, yeah, um, moderators okay. when they they need to know that they can have it sometimes or a little bit. And what I've seen is that if a moderator tries to abstain, they kind of go a little nuts. Like, that's not good. If you're a true moderator abstaining is not a strategy that's going to work for you because you tend to be, they, they tend to get like over focused on whatever the temptation is yeah abstainers it's like when it's off the table they just forget about it it just goes away all that noise is over it's a relief but for moderators they feel much better they feel more comfortable when they're doing something a little bit and it might be food it could be something like technology you know a lot of times a, ga- a game you know a phone game or, or or a website or something you know you can't have it a little bit it's either a lot or none. But then moderators, they, they can play a little bit. Like uh-huh. They want to they get into it a little bit. They don't want to say no to themselves entirely. Do you think that the environment, modern life, the environment makes it easier or harder to stick with habits? Because I think there are arguments on either side. I think most people say it's harder. Oh, life is going by so fast. And if you let it go and just like the stuff that we eat, what, how we define a meal versus how our parents or grandparents defined a meal is just making us fatter. But what do you think? I think you're right. I think it's sort of a mix, probably in some ways. Like, it's probably easier to exercise because there's so much emphasis on exercise and there's so many ways to exercise. Yeah, there's so but many But then on, the, on yeah. the other hand, you could say it used to be 150 years ago, you got a lot more exercise just living your daily life. You didn't have to go to a gym because you were, like, out there behind a plow or whatever. Um, food, absolutely food. I mean, it is insane now, like, the how they've tried to, like, the in def, different food industries have tried to train us to eat at different places. Like, the whole thing about eating in your car, you know, <laughs> it is like you can have a like a Thanksgiving dinner in your car now. Or um, I was getting my hair cut, and they had a spread. They had chocolate chip cookies, health bars. Yeah, the label says it's healthy. I mean, to get your hair cut, I'm like, can I please just go to one place where they're not trying to get me to eat? Do you think there's something called willpower? Do you buy that concept? Oh, I think there's absolutely willpower. But the thing is, is it's draining and difficult to use it. So use your habits and then you don't have to use your willpower. You can save it up for when you really need it because uh, habits are like the opposite of willpower. Oh, habits habits uh, take the place of yes. actually just saying, I'm not going to do it. You're like, well, you're not even thinking. You're not, you're not internally struggling. You're not because if you're the willpower c- is something you draw down. Yes. In an internal yeah. struggle. No. And people say like, oh, I want to go through my day making healthy choices. No, you don't. You mm-hmm. don't want to make a lot of healthy choices because every choice you make is the opportunity to make the wrong choice and it drains you. And so somebody could argue with themselves and try to use their willpower to get to the gym all day long. At the end of the day, not even go to the gym and feel completely depleted because they've been struggling. Should I go now, later? I went yesterday. I'm going to go tomorrow. It's my birthday. It's cold. You know, my trainer quit. You know, that can go on and on. Or you can just get up and go. And you don't even think about it. It's autopilot. Just like brushing your teeth, put on a seatbelt, you go to the gym because it's Monday morning. I mean, there is no willpower. There is no decision. And that's freeing and energizing. And then later in the day, when you want to lose your temper at somebody, that willpower, that self-control is higher because you've preserved it for something where you really needed it instead of using it with this like long running, should I go to the gym, should I not go to the gym debate. That is a good answer. Better Than Before, Gretchen Rubin's bestseller, now out in paperback. What I learned about making and breaking habits to sleep more, quit sugar, procrastinate less, and generally build a happier life. Listen to her Happier with Gretchen Rubin podcast. Thank you, Gretchen. Thank you. And now the spiel. It's a gift to be simple. Today is my birthday, and you, the listener, are going to give me a gift. You're going to give me the gift of indulgence. 
<laughs> I'm sorry for this, but this is going to go on for a while. I got these shoes, these great blue suede shoes for my girlfriend on Christmas. That's what they are. They're blue suede shoes. But you peek into the shoe on the ankle. They have this design. They have this stripe. It's really quite flashy and dashing. But who is this for? And I'm wearing these pants. Andrea, I would like you, I'm going to stand up. I would like you to describe the pants I am wearing. These are kind of blue, black, gray pants. Mm-hmm. They could be really but any of those three colors. But you're using three colors, but it's one color. That's it's that It's one tone. color yeah. that appears like all three. How many patterns ha- are on the pants? It's not a corduroy. There's zero yeah. texture, just smooth. It's a monochrome pants. Yes. Watch this. You ready? Pulling out the pocket. Describe what you see. Describe this. That's some paisley. <laughs> I got paisley pockets, and the waistband of these pants have another crazy pattern. Who is this for? It's adorable. I love I, it. But uh, no one right. can see this. I don't understand it. I don't understand this trend. So this is me complaining about excellent gifts I got. I got a gift of a personal training session. I really wanted a personal training session. There's a lot of misinformation going on about abs. Did you know this? You do them every day or they're like any other muscle. You got to rest. I had a lot of questions about the abs. I wanted to get to the abs question. I did not like my personal training session. Andrea, why did I not like my personal training session? Go ahead, guess. You're a questioner. Okay, that's true. Yes. But when someone says, hey, how was your personal training session? They say, not good. What do you, what, what, what complaint you do you? don't like the trainer. How do they feel the next day? Oh, you should be in pain. You right. should be very sore. Exactly. But that's the exact opposite reason why I didn't like it. I wanted to be sore. I wanted to be in pain. I did not get an, endu- this is what I wanted for my personal training session. I didn't realize this. I just went in with a couple questions about the abs. I think what I wanted was a jacked up dude with a crew cut who would yell at me a little bit and have me throw a tire around. Like I always see this. I don't know who knows how to throw the tire. People train with the tire. I wanted to train with a tire. I didn't know I wanted to train with a tire or they have the blocking sleds like I used in high school on the football team. I wanted to maybe do that, do that fun stuff that I didn't know how to do and have the guy bark at me. But instead, I got this very nice woman who her intention was to get me to do all the exercises the right way. And if you ask me, if you ask anyone about this, because we're human beings, hey, would you rather do that the right way or the wrong way? They'll say the right way. But you know what they really want? They want to do it the wrong way. And I realized something about myself. I realized that I just want to do the exercises I do how I want to do them. Now, the obvious counterpoint to this, which, which was raised by my very nice trainer, was, well, then you're going to hurt yourself. But what am I? What did Gretchen say I was? Questioner. I'm a questioner. So when someone says you're going to hurt yourself, I say, well, I have been doing them the wrong way for 20-something years. I haven't hurt myself yet. Now they might come back with, actually, you have your shoulder. But I got some answers for that. Anyway, my questionnaire, my questionism is not satisfied with that. And when you think about it, how many things, it's so easy to tell someone to do something the right way. But how many things do we ever really do the right way, like the perfect way with perfect form? I bet you there are some people who do because that's how they are or because they have jobs where you have to do it the exact right way. Maybe a, a binary job, right? Toll booth collector. Toll booth goes up, toll booth goes down. You got to do that the right way. Or really exacting jobs like brain surgeon or pointillist painter or the guy who paints on the head of a grain of rice. They probably do it the right way. But I'm asking myself, how many things in my life do I do the right way, the perfect way? 
I think the answer is zero. Do I brush my teeth the right way? Probably not. I don't floss all the time, but I pride myself on being a good dad. Am I, am I the perfect dad? Do I father the right way? I don't know. I got a kid who will always reach for his shirt instead of the napkin. Always. First reach. Can't do anything about that. So how perfect am I as a dad? Now, my trainer said, look, if these were tennis lessons and you were serving the wrong way, wouldn't you want me to correct your serve? And I said, yes, because I... That's me wanting to be a better tennis player. But I have no goals for this training session. I wanted to learn a couple of things about abs. And I think I wanted to throw a tire around, I'm now realizing. The analogy I was making is, let's say I was a fiddler, a fiddling man, and I fiddled all my life. And someone came along and said, actually, you got to tuck the chin under, and you got to put your fingers here, and you got to hold the bow this way. You'd stop liking fiddling. You might get better as a fiddler. And I'm sure that same person would say, you know, ergonomically speaking, you're going to hurt yourself. But I like fiddling that way. I've been doing upright rows. Here's what I do. I grab the cable and I pull it back. That's what I do. Here's what I don't do, what I learned I was doing wrong. I don't sit upright. I don't have my chin at the right position. I don't pinch it in my back. I've been doing it all wrong the whole time. And then what they say is, well, if you use less weight, you'll have the right form. I don't want to use less weight. That's why I have the wrong form. Doesn't it even out? Like if I lift 120 with the wrong form, isn't that just as good as 80 with the right form? I know the answer is no, but I want the answer to be yes, which gets me to greatest hits collections. Wait, why does it get me to greatest hits collections? Oh, just because I'm questioning all the gifts I got. So I got an iTunes gift card and there's a sale on greatest hits collections, $7.99 for most of them. And I'm going through all the different greatest hits collections and a few thoughts strike me. One is there are different ways to name your greatest hits collection, right? An accurate way is how Simon and Garfunkel do it. They have an album called Their Greatest Hits, which means Simon and Garfunkel have a lot of hits. You know their songs, right? And they've put some of those hits on this collection, right? For instance, A Hazy Shade of Winter, really good song. Bengals covered it. Not on the collection. At the zoo. It's all happening at the zoo. I don't know if it's a great song, but it was a hit. It's not on the collection. Why? For though it was a hit, it was not one of their greatest hits. Now, some groups just lie about this. NWA has a collection called The Greatest Hits. NWA had one hit. All right, Straight Outta Compton was their only song that charted. There are a lot of good NWA songs. They're not greatest hits. Sometimes what you want to go with is there's a variation on this, and Enya used it, the very best of Enya. It's very subjective, but you can't argue. If she wants to say this is the very best, I didn't know there were actually different Enya songs. I thought they all just kind of washed over you, but those were the very best of Enya. The worst is when they just flat out lie, and sometimes they do it really scarily, like you're ready for this. Corn's greatest hits, wait, it gets worse, volume one. Bum, bum, bum. Word Up did not enter the Billboard Hot 100, but peaked at number 23 on the bubbling under Hot 100 singles chart, which acts as an extension of the Hot 100, and I guess justifies its inclusion on Korn's Greatest Hits, Volume 1. Then another way to do it is what Three Dog Night did. Three Dog Night is a fascinating band, because their collection, a very reasonable price on iTunes, is the complete hit singles. Three Dog Night has had 21 singles to hit the top 40, and all 40 of those songs are in the complete 
hit singles collection. It is excellent truth and labeling. Now, you might quibble with the fact that of their number one songs, Joy to the World is there. Shambhala, which never went to number one, is number three. This song, Black and White, inexplicably went to number one. The ink is black, the page is white. That's not Three Dog Night's fault. Three Dog Night correctly labeled their greatest hits collection. Now, Three Dog Night has a lot of practice at this because Three Dog Night has issued a number of greatest hits-esque collections. They came out with an album called Golden Biscuits in 1971. Here's what I found out about that. According to Chuck Negron's autobiography, Three Dog Nightmare, the band originally suggested the title Dog Style for the album, the record company rejected this as too risque, but liked the idea of a dog-themed title and proposed Golden Biscuits instead. Then in 1974, they had Joy to the World, Their Greatest Hits. Then in 1982, they had The Best of Three Dog Night. Then in 1993, they had Celebrate, The Three Dog Night Story. Then in 1999, they had 20th Century Masters, The Millennium Collection, The Best of Three Dog Night. Then this thing came out, the complete hit singles in 2004. And then... And the 35th anniversary hits collection came out in 2004. Get the complete hit singles. You'll be doing yourselves a favor. But the thing that I noticed in iTunes and the thing that I was questioning is why anyone would ever buy a greatest hits collection. If you like the band, you probably have or know the songs. If you kind of like the band, you can get the songs for free on YouTube, on Spotify, or iTunes gives you a minute and a half of free song. So if you're talking about the song Sherry by the Four Seasons, that's a two minute, 32 second song. They give you a minute and a half of that for free. Echoes Myron by Guided by Voices. You know, Guided by Voices have a lot of songs that are under 30 seconds. You could just listen to them all free in iTunes. I don't understand why anyone buys any greatest hits anymore. You know, it's like Tina Fey. And I like Tina Fey. Liking Tina Fey, by the way, is one of those things that you gotta say, right? Oh, she's funny. She's brilliant. She has all the right opinions. She does all the right things. She's a mentor. She's a strong woman. That's why not seeing this new Tina Fey movie doesn't seem like an entertainment choice. It seems like the sort of thing that needs a disclaimer, right? Look, a lot of my best friends have seen the Tina Fey movie, or I grew up, you know, my wife's family, they're all Tina Fey. When I was growing up, I was pretty much raised by a Tina Fey. You know, a funny story in my family, up until I was eight, I thought I was Tina Fey. So listen, I didn't see the Tina Fey movie, but it's not that I don't love and respect Tina Fey. I'm just Tina Fey'd out. Because last week, Tina Fey was on Saturday Night Live. She played Sarah Palin. Amy Poehler played Hillary Clinton. Hello, Sarah. Well, what the heck? I landed in the bedroom of a lesbian couple. Now, I knew about that because the day or two before, she was on NBC's Today Show promoting her appearance on Saturday Night Live. And I'm, and I'm not being funny here. In, in, in career highlights, that would rank where? Um, yeah, that, that would be like third behind, uh, lighting the Christmas tree once with you. And then this interview right now. <laughs> and the night before that, or maybe a couple nights before that, she was on Jimmy Fallon. Did you see that Adele concert tonight? That little gal's got a heck of a set of pipes on her. And in fact, they replayed that Jimmy Fallon interview last night. Tina Fey has been dominating the media. No, wait, she's been dominating one medium. No, wait, she's been dominating one channel, NBC. Tina Fey was on NBC more than President Obama was on NBC last week. 
and her polling is higher on handling of ISIS. This is just one network. I'm not even counting the Ellen appearance and the Howard Stern appearance and all the other places she pops up in gyms and on elevators just because she did a junket and you can't get away from Tina Fey. I've had so much Tina Fey in my life. As I said, I love Tina Fey. You're not allowed not to love Tina Fey. But when it comes to spending my leisure time, the thing I need a break from is all this Tina Fey with her spot-on impressions, with her trenchant observations, with her capable physical humor. In fact, there's only one area where Tina Fey is not as hilarious and likable as a person could be. It happens to be in the new Tina Fey movie, according to the critics, which I haven't seen because I've had way too much Tina Fey in my life. I guess I will probably cave. I guess I will watch the movie eventually, or at least I'll stream a minute and a half of it on iTunes. I'll get the main joke, and then with exquisitely proper form, I'll switch off my Apple TV and listen to the very best of corn. That's it for today's show. Andrea Salenzi endorses Chuck Wagon. Because there's nothing dogs like more than an antiquated mode of transportation that might possibly bring to mind an episode of Bonanza if the dog's owner is over 60. Andy Bowers, our executive producer right now, is wearing Sansabelt slacks. Sansabelt means in French without a belt. Because if in English they called them without a belt slacks, everyone would say, aren't all slacks without a belt? Gotta buy the belt separately, guy. The gist, formerly cup of soup, from the makers of Forkaham and mug a beer. It's cup of soup. Thanks for listening. <laughs>